hamster with a blunt penknife would do it quicker. Welcome back to uh, Hamster with a Blunt Penknife. And after a scintillating episode one of Spearhead from Space, I am still here with the wonderful Greg. Say hello, Greg. Hello, everyone. Uh, episode one, how did you find it? Um, I love this story, generally. Episode one um, is very compact. It's a very story. It's a story about the new setting, we're stuck on Earth, we're stuck on Earth, we're on Earth. Um, we've got the unit people. The Doctor appears in the story, but it's mostly on the sidelines and under a blanket. Um, and the mysterious, slightly shiny-skinned people, we know nothing about other than the fact that they're after the Doctor for some reason. Plus, we have meteorites falling into the woods and there appears to be some uh, hurly-burly about who's going to get hold of them. Um, Sam Seely wants the money, the unit soldiers don't want to give him anything. So um, it's, a, it's a very human story set in contemporary uh, London at that time, or sorry, in the wilderness outside. Wilderness, that's a bit of a long bow, I think, in that part of <laughs> England. Um, set, so, yeah. set in the, the, the either the early 70s or the late 70s, depending on what Mordred Undead does later. Yes. Um, or indeed, um, the fact that Sarah's from 1980. Well, okay, let's skip into episode two, um, which I believe you're calling episode one. This is episode one of Spearhead from Space. Um, Spearhead from Space effectively has two episodes ones. We have the episode one that is really mostly about setting up the new format so that the viewers have a chance to understand what's going on. Episode two does a lot of the setting up of the actual story of Spearhead from Space. The stuff with Channing and his minions and the Thunderballs, as Sam Seeley calls them. Thunderballs. Uh, <laughs> uh, laying the basis of the plot. Mm-hmm. We know that uh, people want the Thunderballs, um, including Channing, it appears because uh, the Doctor was found in the woods near where the thunder, uh, where the meteorites landed. I'll stop calling the Thunderballs now. <laughs> I might sound like a demented James Bond fan. Spearhead from Space Commentary with guest star Sam Seeley. Yes, we love <laughs> Sam Seeley. Um, we do. We love, so, his, yeah. uh, we love his wife more, though. Oh, we do. And the important thing about this story is it's really setting up, as I said, the real plot of this, of this series. The first, the first first episode does it a bit, but mm-hmm. it's mostly about the unit people and the people in the hospital. Are so, you sure about that, though? I, I could have sworn this story was actually about Meg Seeley and her, her battle well, with the Auton in her house. We will uh, get to meet... Um, Sam Seeley's far better half shortly. <laughs> right, well then, let's have a go. I will count us in in five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Can I ask you a question straight off the bat? Certainly. What is your personal favourite title sequence? Oh, personal favourite title sequence? I'm probably... 
what they like to call the butterfly tunnel, the last season of Pertwee in the first few bakers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, although I am immensely fond of the second Doctor's uh, title sequence when Troughton's face is used. The first couple of stories didn't have Troughton's face. And just that mysteriousness, mm. um, adding the Doctor's face to the title sequence, which didn't happen during Half, yeah. I think is very important. Of course, it also helps a long-term visit uh, viewer know where you are in the season. I think I think there's it's like it's a nice creepy effect early on. It's when they yeah. start winking at the audience in the in the eighties. Oh, like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and here's the doctor back in hospital, and there's not much going on. I mean, I don't think the audience were ever convinced that they were going to murder the doctor in the first episode no, of his first story. But I like I like that device on his head because we'll have something quite soon <laughs> that later in the story. So it, it's sort of like they're visually linking between the Doctor and whatever happens later, which is, I think, episode three. Do you think um, that um, the Brigadier has to be a strong... Because he's essentially holding this up at the moment, isn't he? He's the lead oh, yeah. we're, we're following. The other important thing is that I think they knew that Nicholas Courtney was a very personable actor. Uh -huh. um, and as it turns out, John Pertwee is also a very personable actor. Um, even in this story, people were talking about how how... He led a troop of people like the lead lead actor does, um, because he was used to that from all the Navy Lark and yeah. other stuff he'd done previously. So uh, <clears throat> they've got two good strong leads, and they have um, Liz Shaw as well, who has a slightly different role. She's not um, leading the story. Ah. Well, you know what? I've heard so. I've heard conflicting reports about Pertwee behind the scenes. Yeah, one that absolutely what you just said there—that he yep. was like the head of the company, he was welcoming to everybody, and, and that, I take all that from Katie Manning. Yeah, and and but a lot of people say that Barry Letts says that and things like. That. But then there's a lot of people that will also say, you know, like he's very happy to do that as long as you're listening to his jokes, as long as you're laughing, yes. as long as you're aware who's the head of that company. But yes, you know he's he the lead actor. Like I, I kind of get it. Yeah. Oh, this now we've is seen this is a beautiful. bit of a broken energy sphere, to use the name that I think they get used. Possibly not until the Terror of the Autons. Anyway, um, and we can see, based on what we've seen from Sam Seely's digging, that um, they're the same. And there's this man behind the brigadier. And as it turns out, he's not from the press. No, he uh, so, has easily the most sinister face in all of Doctor Who. Um, Hugh Burden is this man. Oh, and, my. Um, oh, this creeps me uh, out. This doll-making yeah. sequence really is quite scary. And it, it's fantastic because it's also um, foreshadowing the fact that they make people here. Yeah. Uh, there we have... Oh, what's his name? Ransom? Young fella who used to work here. And oh, Ransom, has yeah. Come back, oh. Has come back to no job. It's that bit there where she starts pricking the dolly's eyes with the pin. She pushes in and then makes sure it can move because the, the ones we tilt the doll back and forth, the eyes open and close. And you've got the unusual thing there of actual music being played into the sequence, and that doesn't happen very often. And full frontal nudity. You don't see that often in Doctor Who either. Well, not, not then. 
nowadays, you know, Tennant, Matt Smith, they're all getting their gear off, aren't they? Yeah. Look and at that location. Like Russell for the fact that Matt Smith gets his gear off. That location, which is like all pipes and very industrial. That's, yeah. That is very much the season seven aesthetic, isn't it? It's very green, two shades of green. It's out of bounds. Oh no, that used to be my office. They've and given everyone. As well. Yeah, they've given everyone like a shiny face, haven't they? Not, not Mr. Ransom. Oh God, there he is. is sneaking up the stairs, looking and not saying much. Oh, John Woodnut. Yes. Now, John Woodnut does a fantastic performance in this story. Um, I don't think it's giving anything away for a story that was shown in 1970s England that um, John Woodnut is being controlled. Yeah. Um, sometimes he is talking like a normal person, but he turns <clears throat> on a pin um, and goes into a very cold and clicked performance. He has a great tell because he, he touches his neck, doesn't he? Every time yeah. Channing's nearby, he touches his neck, so you know something's happening there. Um, and the guy who's playing Ransom, I'm not sure what his name is, um, is such a serious young man in these, yeah. these scenes. He's, he's sure he's right. He's sure that once he gives his case, um, everything will go back to normal. But no. But no, you know, I find his fear of the Autons is what makes them so scary. He's yes. terrified. And that bit where he's drinking the tea and it's all dribbling down him. and <laughs> Yeah. Um, very, very poor things. He's got a drinking problem. So. <laughs> John Woodnut, um, like, this is this is a terrific performance, but I don't think this is his best performance in Doctor Who. Uh, no, but um, it certainly beats his performance on The Tomorrow People if you've never seen oh, The no. Spy Drum. Who did he play? Uh, the Spy Drum. What, what's the his name of the character? It was an alien. It looked like... Um, uh, an alien escapee from the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, no, shut up. <laughs> you, what did you say? The Tomorrow spy drum. It's a special. The spy drum. Spy drum, yes. But his turn Look in um, Terror of the Zygons as the Duke. Yes. My word. As that's... the Duke and the Brokon. And the draconian uh, leader as well in Frontier and Space. Yep. He does his best work with a mask on, it seems, sometimes. What do you, what do you think of him in um, Keeper of Trakan, then? Um, I'm trying to think of who he was. Uh, he's one of the consuls, isn't he? Cassia, yeah, reject this evil! Yes, uh, and with the beard, he looks not, not much like himself. Here's Liz, oh. showing that she would be a good scientific person in unit. Um, I don't know how much opportunity... Caroline John had to uh, practice this, but she seems to be quite competent at what she's doing. That is the most convoluted lash-up, scientific lash-up I've ever seen. They got it ready for the Doctor. But, like, is, it, it is true that had the Doctor not been in this, I think this story has legs enough with these two yeah, yeah. that they could have done a yeah. series of this, you know, with these two. And yes, it's like I was saying, um, the Avengers influence, where you've got the competent woman as well as the competent male lead as well. Yeah. And you have the brigadier representing the organisation that they work for and who give them jobs and stick their nose in inappropriately. 
at various points. Oh, can I can I say this? I just need to say this line. You really believe in a man who helped to save the world twice with the power to transform his physical appearance? An alien being who travels through time and space in a police box. That's such a... That just sums up the show. Yes. And now we have confrontation. Um, Robert Holmes loves confrontation. Mm. Uh, and it's the thing that drives stories. But these guys are notionally allies, even though it's a very unbalanced power relationship. Um, and the fact that they can argue um, sets us up for the future of this particular story. Mm. Well, I mean, um, gosh, what's, what's John Woodnut's character's name? Uh, Hibbert? Is it, yeah, Hibbert. Um, he's essentially... Wait, wait, look, look. <gasps> oh, is it Meg Seeley? Oh, here we go. She'll be at any moment now. Sam, are you in there? <laughs> <laughs> there's um, there's a real um, like suspense around these orbs, though, isn't there? These globes. Yeah, yeah. What they are, nobody knows. And now we have this fella. Oh my word! Appearance. Terror. This guy, this Auton in the woods. Look at his eyes. They're just just not there. And we don't know what he's doing, but. He's responding, we can tell. We don't get told, but we can tell by watching. He's responding to the energy sphere. And here she is, the magnificent oh, Meg Seely. Why didn't you answer me? <laughs> and oh, what's going on in this? She's <laughs> yeah. not impressed. She doesn't trust her husband. He, she knows he's a bad he's a bad one. Greg, oh, you've not... not been stealing again, have you? Yeah. Oh. So she doesn't trust him. She has to look in the box. Lucky he didn't have the thing in there already. And you, oh, no, she's not impressed. You watch your tongue. She's in charge in this relationship, isn't she? Yep. Oh, and in she goes. Now, what we have here, I think, is the prototype of what people call the Holmesian double act, yeah. where you have two two characters who are strongly associated with even though they go off and do different things in the story, it's not as developed as it will become, but um, they're a fantastic pair of reasonably thought-out characters for their very minor role in the story. I mean, I think I think they are... Um, the dialogue is fun enough, isn't it? I, yes. I th it does, but I know what you're saying. Like, when you come to something like Reboss and Garen and Unstuff and characters, like, yeah. that, that's, that's the double-act refined, isn't it? Yes, but he's got the idea. He knows it will work, but he hasn't quite worked out how to do it properly yet. Do you think... He's still um, working out how to write a four-episode story properly, do I say? Um, well, you said to me, I, I, and a message to me, that this is where Robert Holmes basically learned how to write Doctor Who after his first yeah, two Yeah, he's, he's come into his own as um, a writer for Doctor Who. He may well have been able to do things outside Doctor Who, but there's a particular cadence that's in Doctor Who and some story notes that you have to hit. And it's not a shooting story. There's some guns always, especially during this period, but it's not a show about guns overcoming the enemy. Because like you so, think the last story he wrote was the Space Pirates, which is a world yes. away from this. 
in terms of pacing, in terms of the <laughs> ideas, the characters, the the witty dialogue. Like I think some of the dialogue in the Space Pirates is painful. Yes, especially for Tomato Clancy. That is right, Sonny. We were just I was just watching um Liz Shaw undermining the Brigadier to be superior. She yeah. doesn't like the Brigadier at all. What does she say? Camouflage general. It's a spaceship. <laughs> she's, now, she's so funny. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, see, he was quite critical about this as well, playing about with hats. and. But yeah. later in his run, he has a lot of fun doing this sort of thing in, like, the Green oh, Death, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah, when he dresses up as um, the milkman and the cleaning woman. Oh, yes, lovely, lovely. Yeah. Two doctors in a row. Oh, cross dresses. Oh my word! I think I can see John Pertwee's bottom. You can see them. See the hairline. You can see some of his arse. Yes, the pale bit. Well, I'm sorry, Greg. I don't want to see the doctor's butt. No, not do I. But, uh, but, but with careful, <laughs> but with careful camera work, you don't. You just That's... get a hint. Oh. Holmes loves these pompous bureaucrats, doesn't he? Oh, yes. What's the fella's name in Terror of the Autons? Brown Rose or something? Terror of the Autons. Do you remember the, mm. the, the guy who got the, the doctor's like, you know, the brigadier's got a lot on his plate without you lot bumbling in here and getting in his way? Not to mention the um, presaging old deadly assassin style Time Lords with oh, okay. the Time Lord in the Terror of the Autons. This, um, I, you know, the bit where he puts the hat on, which is in a second, I think that's quite yes. a nice look, you know? Yeah. Um, the Doctor's look was sorted out not long before the show was made, and it's a fairly simple thing that doesn't require any great costume work. Most of the stuff you get off the shelf. That's such a simple and effect, isn't it? That orb glowing. Yes. And yeah, I think it really works. It, it's... I'm convinced there's something sinister going on inside there. Oh, yeah. Something sinister going on, and that shiny face, no-eyed plastic man. Oh, not the flat it's cap doctor. Not the no, flat. very oh, wrong. Very debonair. You'll be clashing with Sam Seeley with the flat cap on. <laughs> but look, he's got the Pertwee cloak there, hasn't he? So that's where he got it yes. from. Stole it. Stole it from pompous doctor man. So are we you suggesting then have a poke inside? If that consultant wasn't so flamboyant, then he might have worn some whatever you know anything else that that guy wore. That's right. He could have put on someone's uh, Wild Bill Hickok costume. Wow. <laughs> Is this some sort of prank? Apparently, people always make doing pranks in these hospitals because this is the second episode where pranking is mentioned. by the staff is accused. Yeah. Oh, imagine if he'd stolen that car, and that's what he'd got around uh, in, that little red one. It's an NG, I'm not sure what sort of brand that is. I'm bad with car brands and major you know, types and what have you. I wish that was Bessie, though, Like, and he just stole that car and kept it for his entire run. Yeah. Oh, he gets a nippier one. Oh, I just, and I, it doesn't... He gets very excited when he's talking about it, doesn't he? He's like, yes, that car. I'd love to get one of yeah. those cars. He's quite um, sensual, I guess. He likes he likes the, the cars, he likes the food, he likes the booze. Oh, he's most definitely a conservative, isn't he? <laughs> Indeed. 
He's the most conservative doctor that we've seen, but even he is rebelling against the full structures of oh, conservatism. Yeah. Do you remember the line, was it, my dear fellow, I don't happen to have a pass because I don't believe in them, that's why not. Yes. And this is the Brigadier can't unlock the TARDIS. The TARDIS door is sometimes un can only be unlocked by the Doctor. Mm. Um, it was introduced back in the Unearthly Child. There was a certain number of combinations you could have. And, of course, in um, the sensor rights, the aliens cut out the lock of the TARDIS so they can get inside it. Of course. Oh, so, okay. This sequence scared the life out of me when I was oh, showing yeah. Like, you see the guy's face mangled in the screen with blood. Yes. And the Auton behind him. Like, that is, for children, that is some pretty powerful imagery there. And it's not it's, it's not the most realistic blood colour, but I've seen much worse. I, I think at nine years old, I was completely convinced <clears throat> and terrified. Ew. Yes. There's a strange octopoidal creature inside that glass there. I was going to say, holy snapping assholes. <laughs> That's exactly what it looks like when it comes out as well. Yeah. Making its initial flaccid appearance. Oh, okay, so this idea of the mannequins all standing there in a row. Oh, my word. Yeah. And it's a well-done scene because, uh, well, the one that can move. Presumably, he's standing very still. Ah, this is this is Derek Sherwin, isn't it? Mysterious unit headquarters. This this man who doesn't say a word is Derek Sherwin. Yes, yes, it is indeed, because um, the extra that they got to do it couldn't do it. So Sherwin put the uniform on and did it. How can you? How can you not act saying nothing? It's even harder. Okay. You have to do it with your face. You have to oh. get all the expressions out. Okay, and great. Yes. Pertwee comes in here and he just owns the show now. That's correct. He's awake. He's fully complimentous. And here he is going, oh, and look, here's the good old TARDIS. I still think, like, I, um, I think when I was first watching this, I was still very unsure about him during this scene. Yeah. But when he started, you know, doing the eyebrows and talking about the planet Delphon and all of that, I was yes. like, okay, this is the Doctor. More more comedy play from the Doctor. Um, but because it's simple, uh, it's not being set up for a major um, punchline, works quite well. And again, here's another person being quite familiar with the equipment and also the use of mirrors, traditional now uh mirror sequence that occurs at the start of each new doctor's uh reign even even Troughton, even though we saw even mcgann in the... do you remember mcgann when it's all those different mirrors in that broken yes. wing of the hospital in that very messianic scene yeah and and now okay so i've heard um pert we talk about his uh relationship with caroline john and saying mm. that he didn't think it, it quite worked. I think he's wrong. I think it works extremely yeah, well, well. You watch them here right now, um, and they're very good together, and uh, you can see that Caroline John is, or Liz Shaw rather, is looking at him as a potential ally in her attempts to 
potentially get away from the brigadier who's drawn her down here away from important work to play with plastic. What work do you imagine she was doing? I don't know, but uh, she had a degree in meteorites. Um, and, of course, we've seen in other media, um, there was a story that Kate Orman wrote where she was doing some sort of psychic powers research. Okay. In which it was, it was revealed that um, she left unit because she was highly offended that the doctor named his car after her. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, do you know what? It took me years to realise that. Bessie, Beth, Elizabeth, yeah. Yeah. The question is, uh, where? And here's, here's the doctor cutting through everyone's farting around. We're trying to work out what was in this thing. Well, where are the rest of them? They're so, not there, so I must have collected them. I um I, I have a bit of a, a an issue with uh, moments of Jeopardy cliffhangers because I often find yep. when it's the regulars in Jeopardy, you kind of know that they're going to get out of it somehow. The cliffhanger that we lead up to here is expertly done because it's Ransom. He's a guest character, so he can yeah. die. But the whole notion of one of those dummies coming to life. Yeah, and we, we, we've seen Ransom earlier in this episode and we know that he's sus about the entire setup here. Yeah. So he's effectively a good guy because we know these guys are the bad guys kidnapping the doctor, wrong, uh, killing off a unit soldier. So um, They love this factory, don't they? Isn't this where they film the invasion as well? I believe so. I believe so. I think the BBC purchased an old factory and they use it when they need it. Well, they've probably sold off by now, of course. But... Um, this was back in the 60s and 70s where money didn't seem to be as tight as it would be these days. Like you said you about you said about them instead. making do with the resources that they've got, but I think this story looks great. Oh, yeah. The, the film, as I say, I don't normally see the difference between film and video very much, but doing it on film, it looks like a movie, basically. It's, yeah, and, and it's the kind of one of the very few times Doctor Who does in the classic era. Yeah. Oh, and he, just just that idea of that um, door. and and we know from earlier on that because he's come through that door, this used to be his workspace. Yeah. And he's completely mystified by what's inside. In um in Rose, they essentially play out this scene right at the beginning, don't they? Where the 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 dummy in the warehouse, sorry, the underground bit comes to life yeah. again i think this is more effectively done though because we've seen those dummies for some time now just standing there doing yeah, nothing just standing there so we've seen one oh my like, word great yes yes here he comes and he stood so very very still he must be very skilled at that and oh we're coming up to the cliffhanger and do we see the oh, hand no, fall away no, no. Oh. No, we don't. The hand doesn't do that until next episode. It gets worse next no, episode. There's something very um, like psychologically frightening about like a painted face, isn't it? Like a fake face. Yes. So it's a human features, but it's not showing any of the emotion. Uh, there's no body language. It doesn't, it doesn't move like a face. It has no eyes that we can see. It just has um, a layer of plastic behind, a bit further back plastic or something it's, it's almost like a mockery 
of us isn't it and i find yes. that quite it's the same they talk about it a bit in robots of death don't they robophobia the fear yes. of of fake people um yeah I, so I think this is why this scares me so much it's very well made 